0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Medical Services at St. Helens Rugby League Football Club, Nathan Mill. thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have Nathan Mill who as I said is the head of medical services at St. Helens. So Nathan is a physiotherapist by trade but with uh, post-grad qualifications in strength and conditioning. So I quite like this um, guest like this who have got a kind of not a split role, but experience in both, uh, both fields, S&C and physiotherapy. I think they give a real unique viewpoint on um, on what's going on in the in the performance team, uh, and Nathan's definitely no different. So with, with the chat with Nathan uh, that's gonna come up, we chat about uh, pre-participation screening. We discuss all the uh, metrics and Um, different variables that Nathan looks at in his uh, jump testing which is really really uh, uh, interesting and then we also go on to discuss um, some of the the wider testing that Nathan does with his players and how he integrates that with uh, GPS with wellness with all the data that they collect on a uh, on a day-to-day basis but I'm
1: I'm very much interested in in the managerial side of it, the running the running of things, how, how things flow through the day, how things are best pitched, maximising athletes' time, maximising our time to make sure that we do the right thing by the players as well because they're the product.
0: So just before we get into the chat with Nathan, uh, which I'm sure you'll enjoy, just want to say a massive thanks to Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard and bar and also Force Dex for sponsoring this episode today. So, as you'll hear, uh, Nathan does use Force Dex, um, so hopefully this episode, if you are interested in a Force platform and uh, associated software, this gives you a little bit of um, an insight into what users are doing using this uh, this piece of kit. So, check them, check them guys out, uh, First valve Performance at valveperformance.com and decks at forcedex.com. So thanks for tuning in. I um, hope you enjoy this episode uh, and I'll chat to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I'm delighted to, uh, to welcome Nathan Mill to the podcast, who is Head of Medical Services at St. Helens uh, Rugby League. So welcome to the podcast, Nathan. How are you doing, Rob? You all right? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for giving up your time. No worries. Any- anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a little bit of background on you. Um, maybe a little bit about your education and what your uh, what your role at St Helens is.
1: Yeah, um, educationally, I was I was pretty conventional. Really, I came out of uh, sixth form, went in straight into physiotherapy as a BSc undergrad, uh, qualified, and then went and um, into the NHS for four years. Um, in which time, I did a postgraduate diploma in manual therapy, really conventional physio bits and pieces, um, and then got a first opportunity in sport. Um, with Leeds-Carnegie-Ruby Union um, in 2009. So since that time, um, recognised that one of my biggest areas that I, I didn't really have much knowledge about and needed to expand on was strength and conditioning. So did a postgraduate certificate in strength and conditioning um, in 2012 into 2013 um, and then moved on to a head physiotherapy post in after Leeds-Carnegie after a year to Huddersfield Giants. Um, stayed there for three years um, and then I came to St. Helens Rugby League in 2012 um, and I've been here ever since, progressing through from uh, rehab and monitoring coordinator through to head of medical services, which is my current post. Nice.
0: I had yeah. a little bit of time in England as well?
1: Yeah, I did I worked? I was very lucky to to work with with the international setup, with the Rugby League international setup, and I headed their physiotherapy service from 2012 through to 2015. Uh, so I've had experience working uh, as a four nations in Australia. Um, I, I, I was the head physiotherapist for the team during the 2013 World Cup, and also for the successful Tri Series against New Zealand in 2015. So yeah, it's been a really really good experience.
0: Nice, so. It seems to me. I mean, this may be just because the the two people, two or three people that I actually know in rugby league, uh, who are physios who've done it. But it seems that there's quite a lot of physios that have uh, either branched out or done a like a post grad certificate or an MSC in strength and conditioning in rugby league. Is that just me, or is that happening quite a bit? No, I think it's happening quite a bit. I, I think is it? If I'm yeah. Being, yeah, I think if I'm being honest. I think what
1: what's tended to happen in the past is. Strength and conditioners have definitely bridged that that gap uh, between strength and conditioning and medical, that rehab gap, that slight grey area that conventionally and traditionally what when physiotherapy ended and a player was deemed fit, they would jump straight back into a, a full squad setup. Um, I think that, that bridging of the gap has definitely been done better historically with strength and conditioners and I think physios have recognised that the gap in their knowledge is to understand performance better, and to understand how performance links into rehabilitation, and how performance links into prevention.
0: Mhm. So you just want to talk to a little bit about exactly that and how it how it runs at St Helen's in a uh, maybe an example of a, a kind of six week injury. How what's the how do you how do you make that as integrated as possible between the two members of staff or members of staff?
1: Yeah. What what we we run. It's, it's a posh version. sorry it's a posh name. It's a, it's, a, it's a strategic risk assessment that we do. So as soon as an injury happens that we believe is going to be a, a longer term injury, let's say for example, five weeks or greater, which is classified as a major injury, then we will sit down as a group uh, which includes head coach, head of SNC, myself and the player and we'll try and devise or, or have common goals on what we're looking at with an injury prognosis how we're going to implement strength and conditioning, where are we going to be doing what, and uh, roundabout about where are we going to be looking to progress the player back into squad training so that everybody's of the understanding of of what is expected from the player and what is expected of the injury. Um, And we try and do that with every major injury. Fortunately, Touchwood, we've been relatively good this year where we haven't had to have too many of those conversations um, but yeah that's usually that's usually the starting point so everybody's singing off the same hymn sheet there isn't a situation where uh, in the past where potentially one one person believes to go in one direction and and it it completely contradicts what somebody else is saying to a player which when a player is out for a long period of time can be very confusing and, mm-hmm. and have an impact on their psychology during that particular injury rehabilitation
0: so do you have do you have standardized benchmarks which? Indicate when an in s is to get involved in a, a certain time frame?
1: Yes, yeah, sort of. What we do is we
0: have benchmarks that
1: are done at the beginning of the season. Those benchmarks will be performance-based, they'll be musculoskeletal-based screening-wise. So the benchmarks are a reversion of Spark, really. So we, we do um, uh, an intermittent yo-yo, but it's from a prone position, so it's more specific to the game. And we do various speed tests that link to your momentum scores, uh, power passes, counter movement, jump on force plates. And we also link it in with a isometric mid-thigh pull, which is also done on force plates. So we've got an idea of how they force develop both through right and left side. So we've got some comparables to come back to. Uh, That run runs alongside your basic strength tests, which we use bench and a squat or or a version of that, depending upon the athlete. Um, so, we've got an opportunity to come back to those tests and compare and contrast when a player is ready to return to play. But to be honest with you, Rob, SNC is involved. It's a really fluid process. So, they'll be involved from the beginning. Everyone's got a part to play. And as soon as a player is ready to do something active, then we try and maintain their aerobic system as soon as we're able to. because it underpins everything else. If they're unfit when they try and return back or we don't have that aerobic system up to scratch, then we're almost definitely going to potentially cause another problem if if they return back too early.
0: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a couple of little bits of uh, tech there involving that that kind of return to play process. Mm-hmm. I just want to touch on a little bit of a bit more specifically and what that, them little bits of tech are used for along the way.
1: Yeah, so... With with regards to probably probably my little part of it that I like to, to go into detail about will probably be the use of force plates and how we've integrated that. Um, so we've we've used force plates for a screening perspective, both with counter movement jump and with drop jump. Now, we've used dual force plates so we can look at asymmetry between or, or interlimb asymmetry, um, and we can have a calculation. And we have a look and see if there's a certain percentage which we believe could be the cutoff point of what's accepted and what's not accepted. Within the counter movement jump, we look at three key metrics, which are the mean eccentric force, the mean concentric force, and both of those asymmetries, right versus left, and then the peak landing force asymmetry. So we've got an idea of how how quickly they are going down to the point in which they're going to elicit the force at zero velocity and come back up out of the jump, and then how how fast they're coming from the bottom part of the jump to take off. Um, And then we look at the peak landing force after that. So we've got three asymmetry measurements there that we can compare and contrast against that individual and also the rest of the squad.
0: So what's the percentage cut-off that you've chosen? We've, we've chosen
1: 15%, and that's that's through a little bit of the work that, that Daniel Cohen has done with the four stacks that, that he's had a look at as being a kind of a cut-off measurement point with the asymmetry stuff. He's, he, I think he's done quite a lot of work with, with Arsenal football, so with what the stuff he's looked at, I think that's what he's seen. He's seen that um, lads who have potentially had links to previous injury will display asymmetry of greater than 50, 15%, um, which could have an indication of a potential further injury. So we've we've looked at 15% as our cutoff point, point. Um, and with the drop jump, we've looked at both landings, so the landing of the drop and the landing of the, the subsequent jump and asymmetry of those two. So why, why those three? Why those three? Well, re- research... <laughs> Matt Jordan's probably done the vast majority looking at those three with a camera movement jump with alpine skiers and it's really just been looking into depth about what people believe. There's that there's that much data that gets spewed out and there's that much there's that, there's that many metrics we can look at for me it was quite confusing to see the wood from the trees and which one matched up. Um, so we looked at the three that have been used quite consistently in research. And we implemented that in our initial screening at the beginning, uh, February 2016, we looked at it initially. And we, we got introduced to, introduced to it by the guys at St. George's Park, so Carl Wells and Ian Owen that looked at um, certain things with ACL. So we sort of integrated that as part of our screening and looked at those three metrics and found quite interesting results. We, we found that it definitely did have a correlation with lads that had had previous major injuries, so ACL reconstructed um, knees, uh, syndesmosis reconstructions and repairs, seemed to have a pattern with that particular limb being asymmetrical in some way during the room jump with those three metrics. So we decided that those three were probably the best to continue to use. Mm-hmm.
0: And this might seem a weird question, but it kind of I'll. I'll... Hopefully it makes sense as I kind of go along, but at what point did you decide to invest in four stacks? Because no disrespect that obviously rugby league money is tight. So at what point did you decide this is the one for us? Did you get it, test it, do your due diligence, or was it specifically speaking to the guys at St. George's and their influence kind of made you proceed and, and get it?
1: It was a mixture of both, Rob. We, yeah. we were very fortunate. I was very fortunate to be exposed to the jump stuff and with what the guys were doing at St. George's Park and the good work they were doing during my time at England Rugby League. So in 2015, we used uh, the force stacks and the jump analysis with the England players um, as a little bit of, a, of an elite approach to preparation and to have a look and see if there was anything that was glaringly obvious with some of the, the athletes that we were we were taking on camp. So I was exposed to it there and then following that time Carl um, and Ian came and used the force stacks in a 10-week study with ourselves uh, from February 2016 through to Easter 2016 and we had a look at some key metrics and pre-participation screens before training that we found quite interesting results with a couple of metrics uh, that would indicate potential fatigue and a lack of recovery. So from using that at that time, we expanded it to using it with screening and then following using it in screening, seeing those results which married up to potential detection of previous injury, we thought, right, this is something that we definitely need to look into more
0: detail about and that's why we've continued to use it. So using them three metrics, that was a um, a pre season screen or was that the pre participation screen?
1: No, correct. It was pre season screen. So I don't want to if, if I'm being confusing. It's... No,
0: it's all right, no, no, that's fine. That's ju- it was just yeah. Just for me being stupid. Yeah, yeah. So what it, how does that differ to what you look at pre participation, pre training? Yeah, so so pre-training, we use we we do collect the asymmetry
1: data but it's not something that we use to detect fatigue. What we look for fatigue is basically two key metrics that we found from using them, which are the force at zero velocity and the eccentric duration of a counter-movement jump. So the eccentric duration is the time of which they start the descent into the time of which they hit force at zero velocity. So that's before they start to come back up into the jump. So that duration time, when it extends indicates they are taking more time to get down to the bottom of the jump to elicit the response up which we found correlates with a with a player that potentially is under fatigue and that's linked into well-being scores GPS metrics and then also um, their uh, when we've, when we've retrospectively analyzed the overuse injuries that we've had, they seem to have had a drop or an increase in the, that eccentric duration. Um, the second one, force at zero velocity, is, is what force they elicit as they're coming up into their concentric part of the jump. And what we found was obviously is a dropping force of zero velocity seems to, again, filter into that pattern of a, of a potentially fatigued athlete, an under-recovered athlete.
0: Is that... Is this where you started, or did you, using the, using the force plate, did you start with something really basic like jump height and you've got here, or have you started here you know what yeah, I
1: mean? We we started back at flight time. Okay. And, yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, it was it was typical. We we looked at everything, but it, I, I I'm taking credit for the people's work, Rob. To be honest, but <laughs> it was. Um, and I don't, I don't. Just in case they listen to this podcast, I better put the names out there. It, <laughs> it, it, it was definitely through the work of like Carl Wells and Ian Allwyn at Saint George's Park initially, and then talking to Daniel, uh, listening to some of the things that he'd found, and then that sort of guided myself our sports scientists, um, Oli Ursa, and our strength and conditioning staff to have a look more in more detail at what potential metrics do follow a pattern with either a fatigued athlete with what they're reporting or potentially, if if we needed to, retrospectively have a look at when an injury has occurred and what we see with their jump characteristics leading into that.
0: So how many retrospective injuries have you, have you had a look at? <laughs> we're, we're really found how, how much time uh, have you got? Yeah, know yeah. you need injuries, I guess. <laughs> we're really fortunate this year. Yeah, we're
1: uh, we've, we've had we we looked we've looked predominantly over the over the course of the last twelve months of using the, the the device alongside the jumps, we've had what we would classify as ten overuse injuries. They're not necessarily major injuries, but it's resulted in, in a player missing a training session or more. Um, and of those, we've always found that there has been a, a quite marked percentage drop off of that. or or an increased time of the eccentric duration and a decrease in their force generated at zero velocity Um, we found the cutoff point to be looking at those again between 15 and 18 percent of each one of them um, is is what we classify as a significant drop off so that's something that would flag on our pre-participation measurement that we either have we do something of like a positive intervention, so we do something with them to activate them and then retest, or potentially we we'll would classify them for that particular day as, as high risk. We would then look at what's planned for the session, which we're quite fortunate our coaching staff are very accurate with what they predict is going to be involved in the session. It's fingerprinted really well, so we don't match that particular high risk athlete with what we consider a high risk activity.
0: As always just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Nathan so coming up in part two uh, we discuss how the guys at St Helens are trying to quantify contact and how they manage guys that are going through difficult parts of the season and uh, and getting pretty beaten up which these guys obviously in, uh, in Super League do but just before we get into part two I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today So if you want a uh, sleep monitor that is simple to use, easily integrated into team sports and comes with a series of scientifically validated uh, metrics that you can use in the software, uh, check out Fatigue Science, so at Fatigue Science on Twitter and FatigueScience.com online. So make sure you check them out, uh, but here is part two. As always, would love your feedback. Um, hope you enjoy part two with Nathan. So you've mentioned linking this kind of data in with other other sources. Mm-hmm. How how do you do that, and what what are the other sources that you um, that you link it in with?
1: Well, we've we've constructed um, what we classify as a fatigue index. So basically, we use a, a number of different um, measurements. We try and keep it simple. So we've got a generic measurement that everybody do. Everyone will do a counter-movement jump, three counter-movement jumps, and we'll look at the the specific metrics we've already discussed. They'll also complete a groin squeeze, and they'll also do an overhead grip um, for, for both left and right side. So we'll have an idea of up-body function. We'll have an idea of, of general Well, groin squeeze, a really simplistic test that I think, lads, um if, the, if we don't get a drop in a score, I think it acts a little bit as a conditioning measurement for groin squeeze anyway because they'll do a build-up of three to five repetitions, so we get some adductor activity. Uh, so it, so it, it's a little bit, it's, it acts as a little bit of a conditioning effect for the adductors, and we also get quite an accurate measurement of how their groins are feeling. Um, so that's the generic scores that everybody will do before they start any training session in a week. And then we also work, We also have well that factor into that. And then we also have key GPS metrics that we look at. And they're all weighted. They'll all give a number dependent upon how their number looks in comparison to their norm. Um, and then if they're too far away from the norm, two standard deviations, then it will flag on their fatigue index and we'll get a different number spewed out for someone
0: that we need to keep an eye on. How complex are you going with the use of GPS? Um, not, not
1: that complex, to be honest, Rob. We're quite simplistic in the metrics that we look at. So we look at distance, we look at high-speed running meters, we look at axles, and we look at decels. So they're, they're the four key metrics that we'll look at. We, we try to integrate things like high me- metabolic load. We, we've, we've, we've messed around with that a little bit as a combination thing. To um, so obviously combine certain metrics into one, and also then try and provide it because that should give us a more even playing field for every position. But we've we've always come back to the same four that we seem to believe are, are quite important to fingerprint sessions, fingerprint drills in sessions, and they do tend to correlate with when lads are are feeling sore than other, than, than other times.
0: Mm-hmm. So you talk about fingerprint drills. Mm-hmm. and obviously talking about Chris Barnes just give him a little shout out before before the podcast is <laughs> yeah. um, is the fingerprint drill something well explain what you mean by fingerprint drill alright so, so basically w-
1: w- within one session um, we would have uh, let's just say an edge defensive drill which is specific to rugby league and we would also have a yardage attack so those two separate things would elicit a different response and and a different response to each position. So what we can say is, let's say, for example, we take the edge defensive drill or an edge attack drill and we've got a centre and a back roller, they're going to be producing quite, high, quite a lot of high speed within that drill. So if we've got one player that would produce on average between 120 metres and 150 metres of uh, 10 minutes of edge attack, then we know when somebody, when our coaching staff say they want to do six minutes of that edge attack, then our left-sided centre may accrue 115 metres of high-speed running. So we can be quite accurate with how much they're going to do even before the session starts. So if that particular player shows signs of, of fatigue, either in their jump scores, either in their well-being scores, we can then have that discussion on whether or not it's the right or wrong thing to expose the player to that risk but we but we do it and it's a, it's a positive intervention rob it's not something that we try and pull players and pull players we want players to be exposed to load we want players to be robust and durable and by they can only build that robustness by continuing to train so it's just a it's an educated uh, conversation as to whether that risk is too high or whether the risk is is not present so they can participate in, in that particular drill
0: Mm-hmm. nice so I just want to move on a little bit to and this this is a little bit um, going against what you've just said with the, the few injuries that you've uh, that you've had but this is maybe because you're doing it right but injury reduction strategies yeah and how you go about making sure that your guys are having less than 10 injuries a year is
1: there yeah. anything
0: specific that you do um, to to counteract the, the risk of injury
1: yeah, yeah, we do. We we um, what what we do at the beginning of every season between myself, um, our other two full time physio staff, uh, the strength and conditioner uh, Matthew Daniels and Eddie Gardner, our other strength and conditioner, and the sports scientist. We sit down and discuss if there's anything out there in the literature and research that that that's new, that's up and coming that could potentially be integrated, or if if it's If there's something that's not present that we don't integrate or we carry on with the same battery of tests that we've always used. And then following that, we look at what we've had injury-wise throughout that year. So we'll sometimes change some of the key tests that we use in order to bespoke it to our playing group. So if we've got a continued playing group we've had the previous year, but we've shown that we've had, uh, let's say, an increase in shoulder injuries. Is there something that we need to do that's bespoke to this playing group? to try and, number one, screen for that particular injury, then number two, implement a prevention strategy. So we our screening tests, are, all, are we have a battery that are always the same, so we'll do internal rotation measurements of shoulder, we'll do isometric rotator cuff measurements in two different positions, and then we'll then look at overhead squat with breakouts of that, if they can't achieve our, our standards. And then we'll then look at our jump metrics, drop jump and counter movement jump. Um, and they'll form a slight bespoke program for each individual athlete that they'll complete on weight days. But we generally just apply a preparation to every session. So we do preparation for gym, dependent upon the gym, and that runs consistent with the program. So let's say, for example, we have uh, a hip thruster in the program and the hip thruster is not there, then we'll do a glute bridge. So there's always a, a consistent horizontal hip thrust movement pattern within everything that we do. So that if that hip thruster comes back into the program at a later stage, there's consistency supplemented within our preparation for the gym. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and how much influence do you have on the what's going on SNC wise? Uh, we we all muck in really, Robbie. It's, yeah, okay. um, yeah.
1: it's a real open canvas. We discuss the programming, we discuss implementation of exercise and the risk of implementing certain exercises at certain times, um, and and. We're always looking. I think the, the best phrase I can use is we we're, we're very simplistic, but we're, that's not to downgrade what we do. We just we know what we need to maintain as in a constant pattern within our within our programming, um, and we always try and supplement what we don't have in the program. As in weights room, we always try and supplement within prehab. Uh, we we also do quite a bit of movement preparation. So at least once a week, it's a, a physio-led session in preparation for the field um, that we'll do jump and land mechanics uh, with uh, our other physio Adam Rowland, who's who's driven that quite a bit. And we'll also do general bits of hip mobility, thoracic mobility, and hip activation exercise. As a it, it fluctuates and changes, but we, we go through that sort of circuit of exercises before the field.
0: So you talked about in in the off season and then pre-season getting together and see if there's anything new that how you can manipulate things from the previous year. Mm-hmm. But you said you were you said you were in in this off season you're gonna have a little trip to the states. So wow. I, I know it's it's kind of a it's kind of a thing to do that people are wanting to look what other people are doing and and try to get influences. But what what are you expecting to? What do you want to see? What do you want to take from visits to? the guys that you're going to see in the States. What's the purpose of the trip? Yeah, I think, I think my, my role slightly changed
1: in regards to conventional physio, dealing with the bits day in, day out. I still do, but I'm, I'm very much interested in, in the managerial side of it, the running the running of things, how, how things flow through the day, how things are best pitched, maximising athletes' time, maximising our time to make sure that we do the right thing by the players as well because they're the product So I'm interested to see what other sports do, especially with a couple of the different sports that we're visiting um, and how they structure their scheduling and how they structure their their working day. I'm also interested to see how they've used, because they've also used quite a bit of the the jump bits with the four steps through Daniel's work. So I'm, I'm interested to see how they've implemented that and what they're looking for and what key metrics they've seen, if it's different to the things that we've seen, to compare and contrast results. Um, and then the, the GPS side, how they're using GPS and what metrics they believe are quite important to dictate performance and also dictate whether a player is potentially under fatigue.
0: Mm-hmm. When, when you go, and this is the, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm coming to this in a minute, but what do you feel when you go to other other sports comp- and compare it to rugby League and the kind of environment that I've witnessed and obviously you witness every day in a rugby league environment, how do you see other sports different from rugby league? Um, it's yes, yeah, it's, it's, diffi- it's a difficult one
1: to answer because I think every, every sport's very challenging in their own individual ways. I just think that the characteristics and demands of, of this game—it's um, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult game to quantify because of the contact element. I think other sports that potentially don't have the contact element can be quite. Accurate in in fatigue measurement with GPS because they don't potentially have that in a, inability to quantify contact. We we do have to try and quantify contact as best we can, um, but the, the, that that's what I see the biggest comparable of the, of the sports that we go and visit quite regularly. So we've had conversations with rugby union as well, which obviously do um, have that contact element. I think the interchange is a key is a key area that. Other sports don't have so that ability to take a player off the field and then to actually put the player back on the field at a separate time. That that is that is a big area that we that we look at in quite a lot of detail as to how to maximise our players' performance on the field through an interchange and how to maximise the time off the field to make sure we get the best out of those players. Um, and and again, it's it's something that's quite unique to our sport. But it's it's important to recognise the challenges of other sports as well. Rob, when we go and visit, we've been to football. We're, we're, we're quite local to Liverpool, and I've, we've I've had conversations with um, Andy Renshaw, who's over at Liverpool, about the the challenges of their sport as well. And it's really important to understand and appreciate that, like in football, they might, they might they'll, they'll run our lads to death, but it's the it's the contact element of it <laughs> that just that does set our, our sport slightly aside to that.
0: So, how are you going about trying to
1: quantify the contact? Really difficult. What we've what we've tended to do is obviously we have opto stats, so we can look at how many carries a player's made, how many tackles a player's made, but we st- we still can't really quantify the effect of that contact on the individual because every individual has a different response to what they're exposed to. We've got a player who who, who plays in the middle. He's he's probably late eighty kilos and he'll, he'll do 60 tackles in a game, and he'll, he, he'll do upper body weights the day afterwards for his recovery. You know what, <laughs> what I mean? It's he's, he's, he's unbelievable. That's his own individual way. We might look at that and go, Ooh, but that's just the way that he's always, he's always done things, and that's the way that he's recovered, whereas somebody else who's an interchange player that might only make 20 tackles and do 10 hit-ups might be on death's door the next day. It's a completely different reaction. So I think... Obviously GPS can add some to that. GPS can look at the, the G force of each contact, but it, it, it's needed. We need to code the games, which takes time. And logistically, it's very difficult unless you've got a full-time statistician or analyst to go through each each game and code the game and work alongside um, the GPS and the coding to to elicit a, a fatigue factor of contact. I know certain clubs are trying to do that. We haven't really delved into that in
0: any more detail mm-hmm. and you mentioned there about the in, uh, interchanges yeah what you're trying to do to and you, you mentioned it there about maximizing the time of the guy who has been interchanged mm-hmm. how, how are you so he's ready to go back on how are you doing that yeah well we we we'd like to look at
1: our um we would like to look at heart rate variability live, but unfortunately, like you've already alluded to within rugby league, the finances available, unfortunately, aren't quite there in comparison to other sports. So we, we, we go mostly off conventional idea of, of what that particular player would play routinely, and we also go off live GPS. Uh, what we normally find is their intensity, which is measured by metres per minute. If that starts to drop significantly, then we can start. We can suggest that that particular player needs to be interchanged, and we will actively suggest that during the course of the game. Um, what we have found is a definite pattern between intensity drop-offs and mistakes made, and performance tailing off too. So, I've got to be honest with you, though, Robbie. It's it's amazing because coaching staff actually see this without actually gps showing it <laughs> so the yeah. coaching staff normally recognize when a player is ready to be changed prior to the gps actually recognizing it well i say prior maybe 20 seconds before so it, it is it is a case when we've got very good forward-thinking coaching staff they're making the decisions before we're actually highlighting it which is which is positive from our perspective
0: mm-hmm. nice well i know you've got your uh your club do tonight, so I'm not going to keep you much longer. But I just last, last but not least, I just wanting to ask you: what's the what's the future for the and specifically? I was you spoke a lot about the jump side of things. Mm-hmm. What are you? Is there anything that's in the pipeline that you've kind of not yet brought in with the lads that you haven't look at? Is there anything that you think could be potentially really interesting moving forward in that in that area? Yeah, I, I think it's hard. It's, it,
1: it's we, we look at things quite simplistically because we don't have the, the finances available to be able to expand it. So I think what we will probably do is maximise what we already have. I think maximising the GPS, if there's anything different with what we need to look at, um, we, we're looking more and more with the GPS side of things at, at ball in playtime rather than a, a general overview of the game of what a player's done. We're looking more at what they've done in in ball in play, which from looking at the research is more and more important. Um, Craig Twist is looking at a few things for us in regards to the the potential drop-off that we may see with players at the end of a season and at the time of which we need to be the most, how can you put it, prepared and ready and maintained. We're actually showing significant signs of, understandable, but we're showing significant signs of fatigue and a loss of performance. Um, performance in the gym I mean not performance on the field so we're looking a little bit more into how we can maximize our lads potential for performance at the end of a season when when obviously it's more critical to have that Um, and that's done through various methods of exposure to conditioning sensibly throughout that last stage of the season when potentially teams are maybe looking to tail off and and hold back and try and protect players we're looking to see if we can do a little bit more, exposing them to a little bit more load, um, and trying to finish a season stronger, but without obviously picking up any injuries at that time.
0: Nice. Well, yeah. where can where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on? Are you uh, a social media man? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm not. I'm not as active as what
1: I probably should be, to be fair. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter, um, and I also do. Uh, uh, we, we do a little bit as a, as a group on on Twitter as well through St. Helens Rugby League. So you, you can have a look and see some of the things that we do through that too. Nice.
0: Superb. Well, thanks for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. And uh, Thank you, now we'll keep in touch. We'll speak soon. Good, man. Cheers, pal. Cheers, pal. Ciao, buddy. Thanks for tuning in to episode 154 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So over the last couple of weeks, I've had some unbelievable guests from Bill Burgos at Orlando Magic, Eric Cressy at Cressy Performance, uh, Nick Gill at the All Blacks, uh, Phil Graham-Smith, Head of Biomechanics at Aspire, So I'm hoping that starting with Nathan, we'll have some fantastic practitioners on over the next couple of weeks. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks again for your support. Would love any feedback you have. uh, And I will speak to you in episode 155.